welcome to the Music To My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. I'm Freya Parr, the magazine's digital editor and staff writer, and this week I'm speaking to the broadcaster and producer Georgia Mann, whose dulcet tones you might recognise from Radio 3's Essential Classics. She recently started as presenter of Essential Classics, having previously hosted the station's breakfast programme alongside Petrok Cholorny. She's been at the BBC since 2008, when she started off as a producer working on various arts programmes such as Radio 4's Front Row. As a former English literature graduate, Georgia remains passionate about poetry and literature and still works as a producer on Radio 3's Words and Music. We spoke via Zoom following her first week on Essential Classics. She told me all about the music she's discovered on the job so far, her experiences of live music during lockdown, looking forward to this year's proms, and how on earth she's able to be articulate live on air after being completely floored by a performance. Are you recording from home then? Whereabouts are you? Well, I'm yeah, I'm at home. I'm in my bedroom now, but I've been doing I've been going in throughout this whole thing. I was in doing essential classics. So so I've and for breakfast I've been going in as well because I my nerves couldn't take trying to do it from a bedroom <laughs> with a duvet over my head. <laughs> Yes. How has the first week of Essential Classics been then? How has the first week been? Do you know what? It's been really fun, actually. I mean, you know, there's always a pressure when you do something like this. But at the same time, I feel like I, you know, I feel like I know our lovely morning audience on Radio 3 pretty well because I've been doing breakfast for some time now. And, um, you know, it's a bit, I mean, it's amazing, the playlist of thing that we do with this playlist of feature. And I just cannot get over just the shit, A, the volume of responses. You put out something, it's like, <laughs> whoosh, there's all these people. But also just, you truly do learn a new piece of music, at least one new piece each day. I mean, someone today told me that Duke Ellington had scored um, a 1959 film. I mean, I had no idea that Duke Ellington ever did any any um, film music. So you always go away afterwards being like, oh, I might look that up. So truly a learning curve in every sense of the word, but it's been really good fun. Um, yeah, I, I've loved it. But also I was terrified on Monday. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, you can take a big deep breath <laughs> after today because the next week, you know what can you can expect from a whole week yes. now. <laughs> yes, now I, I've made it through one week. It's always that thing, isn't it? I just want to get through, I just want to get through this one week and I haven't driven myself like a bus into Donald McLeod because we've got this automated start for Donald at the moment and he needs to start bang on 12. And every time <laughs> I feel like I'm driving a car like, and I'm about to crash it into Donald, lovely Donald McLeod, but it's okay, I haven't. He has survived unscathed, <laughs> as have I, just. So you mentioned Duke Ellington there. Are there any other recommendations that you've had throughout this first week that you've never heard of or have been totally new discoveries to you? Well, it wasn't completely new, but I, I knew that um, Miles Davis's score for um, Lift to the Scaffold, this um, quite dark French film from, I think it's the 60s, um, that came up the other day when we were doing, we did Ligeti's um, The Devil's Staircase, that piano etude. And I thought it was really clever that someone had suggested that a follow-on could be Lift to the Scaffold because, you know, an ascent. Um, and we played a bit that's related to the Champs-Élysées and it was such a, it was just a really out atmospheric brilliant little burst of music so I would love to hear the full score uh, for Lift to the Scaffold which is a Miles Davis quintet I think um, loved that also um, Sheku Kane Mason's version of Blow the Wind Southerly uh, which I hadn't actually come across but it's, uh, it's the, the most perfect kind of articulation for that tune is the cello we, we played that today off the back of um, North by Northwest was our was our kind of playlist of today so nice. people were people were going full-on compass points with that um, and I, yeah, I loved that Sheku take on that tune. That was great. Mm-hmm. 
and obviously you've been working on breakfast throughout the last year of lockdown and however that's however long that keeps going on for what have your musical highlights been over the last year either on radio three or kind of anything you've listened to outside of that um well i'd say it's hard not to to think to the moments where I've been really privileged to be involved in some live music because, you know, it's been such few and far between and, you know, it's not just the audiences longing to be in those halls and longing to have those live experiences. It's obviously the artists and musicians too. Um, and I mean, one particular moment would have been Igor Levitt in June playing the pathetic Beethoven. Um, I just, that completely smashed me to pieces, the slow movement of that. I mean, and the way that he comes out and just plays Beethoven with this, I mean, it takes attack to a whole new, <laughs> it really takes it to a whole new level. And I think, but I really think Beethoven would approve because he clearly was a guy who threw everything at life and music. And when Igor Levitt came out and played those opening bars, I mean, I was almost afraid. And then I was, you know, actually had to cry during that slow moment. It was just such a, such a moment. Also, I was with the BBC Concert Orchestra on International Women's Day um, the other day, and um, they were playing a piece by Peggy Granville Hicks, um, who I, I mean, I had not really come across much of her music, and they played this amazing um, Pacifica, Symphonia Pacifica, um, and there's the, the, they were just so happy, you know, to see an orchestra just let out. They'd had such a disaster the day before because some water mains thing had meant that they couldn't rehearse half the material and their poor conductor had been in quarantine for weeks but you know what they were able to just let rip with this kind of really uh, had a kind of Caribbean feel to it I'd never heard it before she completed the piece in, in Jamaica Symphonia Pacifica I think is what it's called and it was a revelation of a piece but also just an orchestra enjoying themselves so much you could feel the joy at playing so you know those moments have been special I'd say. I saw the program for that BBC concert orchestra um, concert and it sounded, all of it was so, it was so eclectic and it was such a brilliant selection of music. All yeah, it's stuff that I wasn't familiar with, um, but, uh, but I loved it. But I mean, sometimes as a presenter, I think it's great to have stuff that you just don't know. I um, mean, the Ruth Gipps, it was the Ruth Gipps Symphony Number no. 2 as well. And I mean, I'd heard bits of, more bits of Gipps because, you know, like the, the BBC Welsh have been doing more of it. But that symphony is just so good. It should definitely be being played as much as certain bits of Vaughan Williams. Um, so, yeah, I love sometimes stepping into something and being unfamiliar and it genuinely is you discovering it alongside most other people it's it's great mm, it's her anniversary isn't it this year I yes think. that's right that's why she's around a lot yeah 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 
finally I know I listened to the National Orchestra of Wales album that they did of her music and I was like the, I agree it was so Vaughan Williamsy. yeah the whole thing but some of it like I'd say she, I mean you know I think he taught her actually he did because like Vaughan Williams did, uh, taught her and Peggy you've got these two very different 20th century musical voices there uh, who both kind of came out of his um oeuvre if you like but I mean but actually I just think that that Gibbs symphony stands up on its own alongside a lot of things that he wrote so uh yeah I'm really pleased she's having her moment listen to a whole tranche of music as part of your day-to-day in a similar way that I do and the whole team does but how do you how much do you listen outside of working hours as it were and how how do you kind of separate your active and passive listening oh my goodness good question I mean I do find that when I come home I need a kind of quite palate cleansing um stuff and especially if I'm feeling a bit knackered I do have to I, you know, I, I will quite often have to have dance music on in the car. I will often be listening to Kistery in the car. I am proud of this. Um, and, um, you know, it, so quite often it will be that something will catch my ear that's got nothing to do um, with my working life. So it's a sin. You know, that brilliant series, that Russell T. Davies series recently. Um, I have I've just been nonstop listening to the Spotify playlist, which is made up you know, like erasure, um, it's just so many pet shop boys, just so many brilliant um, disco and dance tracks from the late 70s, 80s um, from that. And I had that on almost nonstop. I've actually, weirdly at the moment, partly because of the mood of the times, I wanted to get to grips with folk a bit more. Um, and I tend to have certain trusted types who I go to um, a lot through social media. So Pete Perfides, um, a music critic, writer, um, I read his book Broken Greek earlier in lockdown, which is great and just so rich in musical detail. He's put together a really brilliant folk um, Spotify playlist, which I'm just working my way through, um, with loads of stuff in it. You know, there's the Fairport Convention and the Sandy Denny stuff that I would have known, but loads of other stuff, but also stuff that we might not go near for Radio 3, like Donovan doing um, that brilliant um, Yates setting. So I've been, yeah, quite immersed in folk for the last few weeks. And I went through a major, um, it's a sin period as well, I have to say. (laughs) But but the tunes are just so great. And I often need to feel kind of energised, I think. And I need just pure, sometimes I just need like, um, pure energy and joy and and that kind of hit you get from pop. I mean, I absolutely adore it. I've had the Goldbergs on I quite often like a bit of bar piano music when I'm cooking. Strange. I can't quite explain why that is, but it's true. Do you think, feel like you have, because I think there seems to be a bit of a running theme, in particularly in the last year when everyone retreats to certain things for certain moods, do you think you have different styles of music for different portions of your day? Yeah, definitely. I've found, I've moved house uh, joyously during um, lockdown, uh, and I suddenly have a bit of a commute again. Not Not a mega one, but 
um, it means I'm on a train at kind of seven in the morning. And I have got to say, um, Hannah Peel, my fellow Radio 3 presenter, but also just incredible electronic composer, performer, um, I've been listening to her new album, Fur Wave, and that track, Fur Wave, which is just brilliant. As you're sat on the train watching the kind of London vista as you approach uh, Vauxhall, especially on a slightly overcast morning, um, there's also that track of her Sunrise Through the Dusty Nebula, which is just this kind of like, you know, spacey, um, this feeling of morning light. I, and also the fact that that music is so kind of um, obviously very, no words, and yet so evocative. Sometimes in the mornings I just need a bit of a blank canvas so I mean I I love her her music in the morning yeah so so stuff like that in the mornings I, I kind of quite often need like wordless stuff um and then uh quite often if I'm fe- if I'm feeling a bit low or a bit stressed I do often come back to um Bach's prelude to the first cello suite I think that's one of the ones that I I mentioned to you as a kind of piece I can't mm-hmm. do without um because I, I mean, it's a terrible cliche to be like, "Oh, Bach, the universal Bach, you can come to him, whatever you're feeling." Um, but particularly the cello suites, I do think, you know, and that particular prelude, um, you know, I, if I need to steady my nerves or if I need to feel positive and in a, in the right frame of mind for doing something, I do find that that kind of that circular kind of that openness that it has at the beginning you know of the beginning of that piece and the way that there's a kind of break in the middle when it feels almost like the cello is kind of sighing and everything goes introspective and a bit kind of like shadowy but then it comes soaring out again at the end um and I think Bach does like like nobody else does kind of returns you to life renews you um so yeah if there's anything that I've, I've called on again and again it, it is that piece and obviously there's so many amazing recordings to pick of that piece. Are there any that you return to time and time again, or do you prefer to just dabble in whatever's well, around? Well, I feel like I've gone back to Yo-Yo Ma a lot, and Ashley and Stephen Islis as well. But Yo-Yo Ma really sticks in my brain, partly also because I just remember when there was that brilliant episode of uh, The West Wing. Are you a West Wing person no I really need to this is one that was one of my lockdown projects and it hasn't but this is great though because you've got it all ahead of you I'm so <laughs> jealous I'm really jealous of people who haven't watched the Sopranos the Wire or the West Wing it's not just a kind of television phenomena it is just human drama the brilliance of it is you know off the scale and I won't try and capture it now but there is this episode I think in in episode Uh, one of the episodes in season two Yo-Yo Ma rocks up at the fictional White House and he plays the prelude to Bach Cello Suite number one and uh, you know it it effectively silences even the insanity of of the high-powered intellectualising of the White House and I was just reading apparently Yo-Yo Ma turned up for the shoot for that with his cello his Stradivarius just strapped to his back like before anyone else got there ready to shoot and then he even though he was told he could you know mime he played live in every take and there was like 74 takes which I think tells you all you need to know about Yo-Yo Ma he is just strikes me as just what a musician um just what a guy What do you think, obviously you kind of mentioned that it's almost a cliche to 
turn to the Bach cello suites. But what do you think is it about those pieces that captures audiences' imaginations from the non-musicians to the experts and everyone in between? Do you know, I think the cello speaks so directly. It's got this melancholy air about it. So when it's joyful, it feels almost surprising because I always expect the register of the cello to be sad and everyone has these sad associations with it. So when it does do joy, it's a kind of real effervescent joy. But I think it's that, you know, Bach packs such, such emotion into those things. It's like he's trying to force, you know, everything in there. Um, And I think it's the pure intensity of it. The fact that it's a solo instrument yet somehow sounds like it's got multi-voices coming out of it. I mean, you know, just the pure sounds that he's levering out of that instrument. Um, I think it's the directness of the hit that you get from them. It's just like someone, like an arrow straight to the heart in a good way. (laughs) Do you remember when you first came across those pieces or his music in general? Was it kind of early in your musical education or was it later on? Um, The Bach cello suites would have been probably quite a way into my 20s must be I'm probably my mid-20s but I know I know that it can I remember listening to it again and again and again on my iPod when we still had iPods um and I remember thinking I want this at my wedding one day and I did I had that the prelude to the cello suite played by a lovely cellist who is married to one of our Radio 3 producers, keeping it in the family. Uh, And I just remember we had it played whilst we were signing the registers. You know that boring bit in the wedding when you have to go off and sign the register and everyone's kind of restless? Well, that was when uh, Amy played that. And I just remember looking up and um, it was in a chapel in in Cambridge and the light was coming through these wonderful stained glass windows and kind of bathing her in this ethereal light while she played this music and everyone was just transfixed. And it's I don't remember much of my own wedding, but I remember that. Lovely. So let's go back to your kind of first interactions with music. Mm. How did you first dig into that world? Did you come at it through a performing lens? Did you play or were you just an appreciator? Well, um, I guess my, my, my formative musical experiences I'd have to put to my down to my dad, who can't play a note of music but has absolute dedication and utter adoration for it particularly um renaissance choral music although he's come to that kind of later in life and when i was a kid so uh, early 80s mm, uh he was play he he would go through musical ex- obsessions and he still does this um but he was obsessed with the barber of seville and he had what i think must have been a highlights cassette tape in the car and he had I think it was a Philips recording because I remember it being grey with like a red logo on it. Uh, and he had it on all the time. And I just remember Largo Alfactotum, you know, the, the big Figaro aria, playing all the time. And I became absolutely obsessed with it. And I used to have a cassette player at home, which I would record myself on and pretend I had a radio show. Usefully, I now do have one. Uh, but I also used to try and sing along, which, you know, makes sense. Because if you're, I don't know, I would have been five at the time, you can kind of go, Figaro, Figaro. <laughs> there was a lot of like Figaro out of tune uh, and I didn't know what language it was or what the hell this Figaro guy was but it's actually great music for a child because it totally communicates itself you know this whole idea that he's basically coming in and announcing himself um, and also that it's this stratospheric showcase for a baritone to do their thing and it's so show-offy but it's just brilliant for a kid because I just I actually thought I could sing it and I knew what he was saying mm, I did not but that was <laughs> that was definitely uh, my my earliest musical memory Marie. 
And then as, as I was growing up, I just always had these memories of music drifting into my ears on a Sunday morning because my dad would just play with zero thought, actually, bless him, for everybody else being asleep or whatever. I remember him playing Allegri's Miserere on Sunday mornings, even though he is not remotely religious. Um, and that, inc- you know, those amazing crystalline cathedral-like sounds kind of just emanating in the air on a Sunday morning. Um and which was magical. So, you know, I credit him with the early stuff. And then I started to sing. Uh, and I was a singer. I mean, was, I suppose I still do, but mainly in the bathroom at karaoke bars when they reopen uh, now. But um, I did audition for the Guildhall. It was a terrible audition. And quite rightly, they did not, they did not allow me in and I don't blame them. Uh, but I did do a fair amount of singing in my younger years. Um, and, you know, I, and I uh, was a bit of a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, fiend for a while. Uh, I can't believe now that I was actually able to sing Mabel in the Pirates of Penzance. I mean, some people write in and say that I sound like I smoke 50 a day, which I don't, by the way, but there was a time <laughs> when I could hit top C's in GNSs. So, uh, yeah, it, it was singing at school, singing as I got older, singing a little bit when I got to university at Cambridge. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, the, the, the singing thing was was influential in, in my kind of musical forming of musical strands in my life. What role does opera and choral music have in your listening nowadays? Does it kind of appear as much as it did initially? Um, vocal music is always a massive thing to me, um, partly as well because it's about words and I've got a huge love of poetry and all things literary. I mean, that's what my degree was in, but it's also, you know, my big love doing words and music on Radio 3. I've been making that programme for a long time and I absolutely love it. Um, so you know, the bringing together of words with music will always be a huge thing to me. But when I was singing, I listened to a lot of Cecilia Bartoli because I really wanted to have a bash at doing some of that incredibly ornamental Baroque stuff. But, oh, my God, I never even got close. Um, and and equally, actually, for, for a while, I was listening to quite a lot of um, Aileen Manahan Thomas because I, I had a good old bash at singing Nuller in Mondo Pax and Chera. I sang that at a wedding and, um, you know, obviously when you are singing, you just become fascinated by certain voices and and how it works. And I have never lost that fascination. I still absolutely marvel at how at how certain people do certain things, um, especially when you're seeing them do it live as well. Um, so... Opera has been slightly less of a thing, especially in the last few years, just because I've had a young child and it's been slightly more difficult to get out and actually and actually do it and enjoy it. But I really intending to change that as soon as this world uh, goes back to normal. In fact, I was going to be seeing Yennefer, uh, the Janacek at the Opera House, and I'd just done this brilliant like um, event with Carita Matala and Alan Clayton, and that was literally days before lockdown kicked in. But I think that is happening again now, so I am desperate to see that. Um, so, yeah, it's something I want to have more on of in my life, but it's been in my life, yeah, since I was since I was a young teen. What other things, obviously, opera you mentioned is one thing you're really looking forward to getting back to post-lockdown. What other kinds of performance do you have on the horizon? Anything you're, like, specifically really looking forward to? Hmm, anything I'm specifically looking forward to? Hang on, let me just get my brain into gear here. 
<laughs> Let me think. Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know yet what's happening with it, but I just cannot wait for the proms. You know, I mean, I know it sounds like a bit of a cop-out for a, for a BBC presenter to say that, but the proms <laughs> are such special things. I've heard tiny little rumours and snippets, and so I don't know, but genuinely, I don't know what's happening. But I do know that we're going to get a first night, a six-week season, a last night, and an audience. And I just couldn't be looking forward to anything more than that because those things for people I've been talking to people who come to the proms now for how many years since 2008 I've been doing kind of going out and meeting the promers and getting a sense of who's there and why they come and what the proms mean to people beyond just music you know that thing of you know uh, being united by this very special moment that is the proms that building I've just made a words of music which is all about the Royal Albert Hall actually and the whole time I was making it with some pretty hilarious moments including like a letter about a lady who was flashing the promers in the 1970s somewhere near <laughs> later 28 um that just reminded me and made me long for the Albert Hall even though it's actually slightly malfunctioning when you get in there the backstage area is very definitely not kind of um high VIP levels but I've got such affection for that building and I just can't wait to be in it with promise again you know and that electricity in the air um so if there's anything I'm looking forward to it is the proms agreed seconded wholeheartedly looking back obviously you've done it since 2008 that's a good chunk of time and you've probably been witness to some of the greatest bronze performances ever what are the are there any that really stick out in your mind that have stayed with you ever since yeah I mean probably the best this one, I probably would put this up there as my best ever live music moment was the Verdi Requiem in 2018 with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus, um, uh, Andres Orozco Estrada conducting, and uh, Lisa Davison, Dame Sarah Connolly uh, were two of the soloists. And it was one of those times, I mean, the funny thing about presenting uh, proms is that, you know, you are in this incredibly privileged position. It is an amazing thing to be presenting at proms. Um, it's just a great thing. So, But sometimes it does mean that your brain needs to be slightly removed and in work mode. You know, you need to be thinking, okay, what am I going to say during the clapping? How am I going to link that to this? What about if they walk back on and do an encore? I'm not actually, you know, your brain is sometimes stops you from being able to just fully let go into, into the moment. But the Verdi Requiem is obviously such a massive awe-inspiring piece but that performance just floored me it was like every single person on that stage was buzzing and just so committed they were just practically falling over themselves and you know sometimes in at the proms you do you feel that electricity in the air you just feel something is different and um when they unleashed the DSRA, it was like a wall of sound had just fallen on my head. I felt scared. I remember feeling scared. Somehow in my head, I feel like there was red lighting that night. And actually, the lighting designers at the Royal Albert Hall are kind of amazing. So that might have been true, but I might have just added this amazing kind of fiery redness to the whole thing. you know some people often say they've got issues with the Albert Hall's acoustic and that sometimes there can be like a loss of definition but I remember thinking my god this is the perfect 
crucible for this kind of fiery music because it's massive. But also Orozco Estrada somehow managed to, he did manage to get these moments of incredible detail. I remember just being able to hear a piccolo and a bassoon, like they kind of sliced through the sound. Um, But then Lisa Davison opened her mouth and, oh my God, I mean, what a voice. I could not believe it. Um, You know, in those, in that Libera May bit and also the duets with Sarah Conley, because Lisa Davison's got that ability to kind of sound she sounded almost bell-like you know the clarity of it but then she could kind of warm it up with this voluptuousness and I just remember feeling just enveloped by the sound of that thing totally taken away with it I mean if they'd opened the microphone I do not have a clue what would have come out halfway through that performance because it was just such a moment um with all the you know when you all the hairs in the back of your neck go up you just know something's going on so that and also I can't help but always think incredibly fondly of Baron Boehm's um, West Eastern Divan Orchestra Beethoven cycle, the Beethoven Symphony cycle during the 2012, what became the 2012 Olympics summer. Um, and I was producing at the time, producing the proms and Tom Service was presenting them. And he, you know, it was just such a combination. Um, and I remember I got to hang out with the orchestra a bit afterwards and the whole thing just felt like, it felt like a kind of rock and roll such a moment in time and it is so many millions of miles away from where we are now sadly everything's so full of hope so full of excitement the music was so youthful energized it was just really something else uh, so those concerts also stand out in my in my head how do you in a in a concert like Verdi's Requiem when you're so in the moment how do you then pull yourself out and try and say something articulate immediately after well that's a really good question and I'm not sure I always do <laughs> Oh God. I mean, usually I have, you, you have to pull yourself back from the brink. And, um, I, I try always to start thinking, my brain immediately starts going words, words, seeking around for, you're just looking for those adjectives, trying to pull them out of the air. But I have learned, I hope a bit that actually sometimes in those situations, it is better to say less rather than more. And the more you start splurging, um, the 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 more you kind of take away from the situation in a way so i've tried to learn to not say over much but i suspect that at times like that just the tone of your voice i mean it's impossible really to come off the back of something like that and not sound like an overexcited 12 year old <laughs> which maybe our listeners can <laughs> confirm um but yeah i just try and uh, my brain is going words words find some words write them down that's it i usually write them down in large capitals on my script uh, and hope that they'll come out all right <laughs> really wise yes. very wise so to bring us back to the current day is it what have you been listening to obviously you've had a very busy first week but Maybe before this week, when your head was less scrambled, what have you been listening to, and what's kept you sane? What's kept me sane? Um, (laughs) I'm not sure I have been very sane. Um, I listened (laughs) to loads of Ella Fitzgerald actually um, around Christmas and New Year, um, just because. And I listened to they unearthed a new uh, Berlin tape, you know those famous Berlin gigs that she did um, in I think the 60s, uh, and I just 
I find Ella so comforting. She was my grandmother's favourite singer, but uh, and there's also a brilliant documentary about her on um, BBC iPlayer at the moment, which I watched. So I kind of soaked myself in Ella. I've been listening to tons of Serge Gainsbourg lately, um, partly because I'm reading a book about him called Relax Baby Be Cool, which, <laughs> which I just love the title of. But I've had this kind of morbid fascination with Serge Gainsbourg for ages, um, just because I think, I mean, I have a French connection in the family. My my dad's dad was French. And there has just always been something about the uber Frenchness of his sound, the kind of darkness of it, the gitan-soaked, sexy, um, slight cockiness, I think it's fair to say. Um, but also, I find that there's a kind of... Ooh, shadowy Frenchness about him that I just find absolutely fascinating. Um, so I've been reading about him and discovering his kind of his early jazz albums. I mean, I'm not sure everybody realises, but Serge was the ultimate kind of um, musical comedian. I mean, he was doing um, reggae, he was doing electro, uh, funk, rock, the whole shebang. But I've been um, really listening to um, Gainsbourg Number no. 4, which is one of his jazz albums, which has this brilliant leg on it the opening track which is about seaweed which you know doesn't sound that appealing but it has these incredible kind of underwater sounding strings um this kind of you know smoky crepuscular feel to it and there's also a song on there called black trombone or black trombone as he says um and yeah i'm just can't i'm sort of feasting on all this um uh serge uh stuff in this book including the fact that he owned um a rolls royce which he didn't actually learn how to drive and just used as an ashtray i mean anyone that does anything like that is fine by me Total baller. Absolute baller. He was the OG. And he was having perno for breakfast. I mean, give me more, Serge. Always give me more. <laughs> he He's renowned for his extremely colourful life and all the relationships mm. and things like that, which you've been reading about in that book. Do you really like to know and understand the figure at the, at the centre of the music you listen to? I do, actually, especially because I spend my life writing little links about pieces of music and the people that wrote them. And it gives you, just because it gives you such a I mean, for example, Saint-Saëns, I had no idea that that guy had such an incredibly tragic backstory. You know, a child who died, he then leaves his wife, she blames him. I mean, it does end up giving you a different way of listening, I think. And I know um, I know that there's plenty of people out there who would say that you always have to divorce the art from the artist and all that stuff. But actually, especially if you're someone who has to talk about the music, contextualise the music, I think it's really important to know something about them and to know what makes them tick. I mean, Gainsbourg, so his parents were Russian immigrants. He had to wear a Star of David as a child because it was during the Nazi uh, occupation of Paris. Um, he experienced a fair amount of anti-Semitism, actually, throughout his life. So I think the fact that he becomes this incredibly troubled, troubling figure uh, for France and for those outside France, I mean, by the time he died, he was, you know, doing pretty horrendous things and embarrassing himself in terrible ways involving Whitney Houston on live television, which we shan't dwell on. But um, yeah, I've, I find it just fascinating to get to grips with someone's backstory, um, especially those who have a darkness to them. Um, and I think you need to do that if you're going to sit there and talk about people's music. You need to have that curiosity. You need to have that that uh, knowledge, actually, I think. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Before I let you go and relax for the evening before your heavy day of broadcasting tomorrow, if you could rule the airwaves 
on Radio 3 or whichever station of your choice with one piece of music that you wanted to introduce the world to, what would what would it be? What would you want to champion? Oh, my giddy good on. That is <laughs> bad. Oh, God. Right. Hang on, hang on. With one piece of music. Mm. Uh, I've already done a requiem. Uh, mind you, the Monteverdi Vespers are amazing, but then can people handle all that? You know what? I think maybe at the moment, if I could rule the airways and play one piece of music to people who perhaps aren't totally au fait with classical music, I think Mozart's Laudate Dominum, just because having sung it myself very badly and run out of breath during that massive long Amen at the end, <laughs> um, Kirita Kanawa sings that really amazingly, actually. Um, I would play that at the moment because I think it is the ultimate in consolation, but it's also got joy and it's also showcases the human voice, which I think is the ultimate instrument of them all personally. Um, I think it draws you in, it wraps you up, it lifts you up. It's the meeting of orchestra and voice. um, And it's the taking of the individual to somewhere sublime takes you out of yourself. And I think, this particularly has been a moment when people have wanted to be lifted up, um, taken somewhere. It's transformative. It's transforming. Um, and I think it says it all, basically. So I think, yeah, I would I would uh, get a really great soprano who wasn't me to sing Mozart's Laudate Domino. Georgia Mann talking to me from her home in London. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thanks to ACAST for hosting and Brittany Colley for production. 